My name's Darren, and I'm one of the pastors of the many great churches in the city of Long Beach. And on behalf of all the great churches in the city, I want to welcome you to this event. I want to thank you for being here. I'm personally very excited to have all of you here. This is uh, an exciting kind of moment for uh, many of us pastors and, and, and uh, disciples of Jesus that have been in the city for quite some time. We're excited to have Dr. Dallas Willard with us this morning. Sharing his, yes. He'll be introduced in just a few moments, but he's going to share some of his experiences and thoughts with us as we learn how to be the church of the city. This event came out of a time where uh, another pastor, Pastor Brandon Cook from Long Beach Christian Fellowship and I, yeah, <laughs> he's already getting applause, amazing. Um, we were praying and we were asking a question, what would it look like for the Church of Long Beach to be united together, to be um, a testimony to the city? What would it look like for us to not just pray together as, as, as pastors, but as churches and to collaborate and unite and be one? And it, we found out as we began to have these conversations with other pastors and people in the city, this is not, uh, uh, this is not an un unusual conversation. In fact, many churches in the city have been having those, asking those questions way before I was born. Um, I mean, this church is almost a hundred years old, and they have been leading the way in collaboration for the city, and is a testimony for what we hope for. So today, for me, is, is, is already a testimony. It's already a success. We're here. And so what is today about? Well, Dallas is going to share with us in just a few moments. Before that, we're going to worship together as one body. Um, Dallas is going to share. We'll have some time with, uh, for question and answers. And then we'll take a, a long lunch break. We'll come back. We'll sing some more songs in worship. We'll hear from Dallas again. We'll have some more t uh, question and answers. And then we'll have a time of prayer. So that's the day. You excited? Yeah. All right. Can, can I ask you to stand? I'm going to invite you to stand and pray. And then we'll, we'll sing some songs together. Again, I want to welcome you into this place as we come to worship the living God together. And as we seek God and His Son Jesus to be transformed, to be like Him, to live as He lived, to do the things that He said and did. This is a beautiful, this is such a beautiful gathering. My name's Brandon, and uh, I pastor a community that's a part of the church in the city called Long Beach Christian Fellowship. And I got to say, what a beautiful thing to see people coming from all different walks of life, all sorts of different communities, all different parts of the city coming here to be the church together. Well, we've been really excited about this day for quite a while, and I have the pleasure of introducing you to our teacher and leader this morning, Dallas Willard. Um, would you raise your hand if you've ever read one of Dallas's books? Look at that. Would you raise your hand if you've ever heard Dallas speak in person besides today? Okay, so you, you see the impact and the influence, right? Um, Dallas has been the professor at uh, USC, professor of philosophy for many years. Got some Trojans in the house. Go Bruins. I don't really, I really don't care at all, but I'm from the South, so we, whatever. Um, and you probably know many of his award-winning books, uh, among them Renovation of the Heart and uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines, uh, recently Knowing Christ Today, and of course The Divine Conspiracy. So there's a lot of way I could introduce this man to you, but I, I, I think I want to draw upon, I think the best way that I can introduce Dallas this morning is to uh, use the words of my friend Bill Hull, 
who, when Bill was announcing to his congregation, All Saints, that Dallas was going to be in Long Beach, he said to them, if C.S. Lewis were speaking today in Long Beach, would you be there? And, of course, everyone says yes. And he says, okay, well, we don't have C.S. Lewis, but we do have Dallas Willard. And I want to say I think Bill is right on. I know from my life, I don't know of a, of, a, of a man whose heart and whose mind have been more influential in shaping the way that the church is thinking about what it means to follow Jesus and, and busting paradigms and creating new paradigms. So quite frankly, it's an honor to get to introduce uh, to you this morning Dallas Willard. Dallas, would you come and lead us? Thank you. Well, thank you for coming, and thank you for those kind words. The trouble with introductions like that is you're afraid to speak because you think you might ruin your reputation. (laughs) But we will launch ahead and trust the Lord to be with us and help us. I was immediately drawn to come when I was told that this is really about the church and the city, Um, because that is a great burden for me. I don't think the church is doing well in the city. And it is in part due to a long history that has led to increasing division and increasingly trusting in the wrong thing. Our traditions, for short. And now we live in a time where it is fairly obvious that those traditions are not going to do the city much good. And so we need to look deeper, and one way of doing that would be to go back into the beginning of the traditions because those traditions nearly always began with something that was really good. And if they hadn't, they wouldn't be here now. I often say to people, if you... Uh, Do you think that if in the beginning with Christ and the Apostles they taught what your your church teaches, would there be a Christianity today? Something to think about. And uh, that kind of question can help us uh, come back to what is real that exploded in the ancient world around Jesus and his friends and carried up through layer upon layer of stuff that might not be very good or attractive to where it's actually accessible today. Uh, And it's accessible to anyone who will simply uh, seek for it. So we're going to be talking about life in the spirit. And you have some notes, I believe, uh, to follow. And uh, actually, I probably will stay fairly close to those. But who knows? And uh, one of the reasons why I like to have handouts is in case I get caught up in the sound and fury of my presentation, I lose track of what I intended to say. What I want to say to you is actually very, very simple. Very, very simple. If we live in obedience to Christ as his disciples, we will have the power of the Holy Spirit to carry us not only for our own lives, but into the world which is still waiting for the people of Christ to finish the job that was laid down for them in Matthew 28 and in Acts chapter 1. 
And uh, now uh, Jesus told his people to go and bear witness, that is, bring people to know him uh, in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth. And guess where Long Beach is? Well, from one point of view, it's the uttermost parts of the earth. (laughs) From another point of view, it's Jerusalem. And from the point of many of you from other parts of the world, your Jerusalem is there. But the task is not finished. And uh, we are living today in a period where humanity is coming more and more to a crashing conclusion. And if there is not a permanent change in the way the church approaches this, then there's going to be no hope because it is God's plan to use simple organizations of simple people to revolutionize the earth and to allow the kingdom to come all through the earth and that his will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I know that there is an eschatological dimension to that. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not actually worried about that because someone else is in charge of it. What I'm concerned about is what we do now and what life in the Spirit means for us and what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the age of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to work on with you this morning. Let me take a couple of texts to depart from. And one is John 12. In John 12, Jesus is coming up to the crucifixion, and he is considering his course of action. He has various possibilities. Uh, But his decision is that he will follow through with the cross. And in verse 23 of John 12, now we're talking about being a follower of Jesus and how the Spirit comes into that. Here's what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's that going to be like? Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it into life eternal. Okay, now we're talking about following Jesus. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Follow me in what? In death. In death to this world. If we follow him, we follow him in the surrender of ourself and turning loose the project of trying to save our lives. So saving our lives now is off the board. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now, that would mean, of course, that his Father would pick up the life of the person who is surrendered and is no longer devoted to saving their own life. 
And now this comes down to very common everyday ways of living. It isn't terribly dramatic. It amounts to how we care about one another and about how we care about God's plan for our lives. It amounts to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, even if our neighbor is our enemy. You follow? That's where we give up our lives, is in the common, everyday relationships in which we live in the real world. And we do that by loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Now, you want to talk about life in the city, Christ in the city? That's how you do it. You have Christ in the city, the church in the city, church as the redeemed people of Christ, by developing people who actually love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I'm tempted to spend all of my time just talking about that one verse. How do you do that? Because we really don't hear much about that. Uh, But our lives are totally surrendered to God because we will what God wills. You love God by willing what God wills, by acting for what is good in God's eyes. And then you love your neighbor in the same way you act for what is good for them. And you do that out of the strength that comes to you from loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now you might think that if you went into a local church, everything would be focused on that. That everything they did would be devoted to helping people to come to the place where they loved God in that way. And, of course, that would mean that they would be learning about how the Holy Spirit works in our lives to bring that about. Because, you see, you can't do that without the Holy Spirit. And I hesitate to say that because there's a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and it's almost as if sometimes we're sitting around waiting for the Holy Spirit to do something. And you get a lot of that, the impression of that in many of our churches, that they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to do something. Well, the Holy Spirit's ready. He's waiting on us. Now, for many people, that's a theological stone that is hard to swallow, so we will have to talk about that. But let me just refer you to one other passage in the Gospel of John, in the 14th chapter, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, keeping his commandments is the place where the Holy Spirit meets with us to bring about the presence of God where we are. Keeping his commandments. He's not saying, like, you know, uh, someone might say to their loved one, if you loved me, you'd buy me a Mercedes Benz. What he's telling us here is not that kind of if 
What he's telling us here is an explanation of how and why we keep his commandments. Because we love him. Now then note, next verse. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another than Jesus himself bodily present, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him, can't see him. He's not visible to normal eyesight. He can be seen to those who are spiritually alive by him. The spirit of truth. Now, see, truth is in the domain of obedience. He is the spirit of truth. He comes to bring truth. And he comes to support truth where it is. And one of the ways that we learn to live life in the spirit is by speaking the truth wherever we are. Speaking the truth in love, as Paul says. Love expresses itself in truth. And as we learn to live there, the spirit comes with us. Uh, The world can't see him. Others look at us and can't figure out what's going on with us because they don't have the ability to see the action of the Spirit. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And then Jesus goes ahead to explain how those who obey him, uh, the Trinity moves in to their lives. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And is a manifest presence that they know by his motions, by the motions of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their lives as they live in the truth and obey what Jesus said. Now, in case you missed the point, what I'm saying to you is obedience is central to life in the Spirit. Okay, obedience is central to life in the Spirit. So let me just stomp my foot a bit on that because, you see, so much of the teaching about the Spirit in our life does not take into consideration obedience. And, for example, we are likely to take a performer as a very, very powerful person in the Spirit when their life does not accord with what Jesus taught. And so that's one of the things that the churches suffer from now, is pursuing a performer who can cause dazzling things to happen, but whose life is not a holy life, a life of love, of truth, and obedience. And that's where we often get in great trouble. And the church likes to, or the world likes to beat us with our stick because they got some outstanding person that everyone knows who is now messed up in their life and and caused great shame to Christ. And then they like to say, well, see, that's what Christianity is. Well, maybe Christianity. That's a topic that we can't spend a lot of time on, but we just need to acknowledge that what is called Christianity today has no necessary connection to obedience, to discipleship, to life in the Spirit. And uh, we have limited time, but I just call that to your attention and ask you to think about it. Because life in the Spirit is for disciples. 
Discipleship is a way of living that learns to obey Christ, and that obedience can only be supported by the activity of the Spirit in the life of the individual and in the life of the group. And that's why this passage in John 14 is so important. You know, he's leaving them, and they're all confused about it, and they don't know what's going on. And so they need to have the teaching about the presence of God with them as they live a life of obedience before Christ in the world. Christ in the world still. Now he lives in his people. And that life is a life in the spirit. Okay, let that serve as a scriptural background now. And if you look at your notes, let me spend some time just spelling out this idea of what it is to follow Jesus. See, that's our, that's our subtopic on your notes. You'll see there what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the age of the Holy Spirit. And in short, it means to be a person who has learned how to do what Jesus said to do. And, of course, essential to that is a life where the Spirit of God is constantly active to direct, to uphold, to empower what they're doing. So they're leading a supernatural life. A life of obedience is a supernatural life. It isn't something anyone can do just in their own strength. never was meant to be. God never designed us for that. You look at the Ten Commandments. They never were meant to be something that people would keep on their own. Human efforts to get control of the operation will suggest that that's what should happen. Oh, no. And that's why the first commandment of the Ten Commandments has to do with, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egyptian bondage. You will not have any gods other than me. Now, you don't go on to the other things without going there. And that is the equivalent of the life in the spirit that you then see spelled out more clearly by reference to Jesus uh, in the New Testament. Right? So now, in case you miss it, I, what I want to impress upon you just at this point is that the life of the Spirit is not primarily a matter of magnificent events. It isn't. And if you try to lead the life in the Spirit by having magnificent events, you'll be a magnificent failure. <laughs> now, if you lead your life of obedience where you are, expectant of the Holy Spirit to assist you to lead a life of obedience, there are going to be magnificent events, and they won't hurt you. Okay. If you're not leading a life of obedience in the power of the Spirit, the magnificent events will hurt you. And you will, for example, you will try to get to reproduce them over and over and over. And that, unfortunately, is where many teachings about the Spirit's work in our life is stuck today. They're trying to produce 
a standardized set of events as the mark of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then you look at that and you realize that does not involve character transformation. Now, it's not new, okay? You open up 1 Corinthians and Paul says, you do not come behind in any spiritual gift. And then the whole book or letter is about character problems. Hmm? The work of the Spirit is primarily a work of character. And that is why this beautiful prayer of Paul's in Colossians uh, chapter 1. Listen to what he says. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power how much power does that leave out? all power strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Okay. Now what didn't you find in that list? You didn't find uh, converting 5,000 people. You didn't find an explosive event that came upon the people of Christ and spread throughout the city. Now, did that happen? Yes, it happened. It was important. It served a purpose. And it can serve a purpose today. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying, if you want to see the point and purpose of the power of God, you have to look at character. And that character is Christ-likeness. Now, when you look at that prayer, then you go back to the church in the city. This is what the church in the city has to have. It has to have people who are so transformed into Christ-likeness that they easily and routinely do the things that he said. And for those people, it is safe for great manifestations to occur under the direction and will of God as that is appropriate. But that is not where life in the Spirit is concentrated. To go back to your note now, to follow Jesus means to trust him and therefore to seek to be like him. It is to be embedded in a part of what he is now doing in my world. That's what it is to follow Jesus. That's why Colossians 3, 3, I reference there. You are dead and your life is hid 
with Christ in God. That's our position now. That's what it means to follow him. Your life is hid with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you also will appear glorious. Uh, Don't appear glorious now, okay? I don't think you can stand it. (laughs) But you will appear glorious. And it is purposeful and intentional on God's part that you be hid with Christ in God. That's your life. Now, that's what it means to follow him. It means to believe he was correct in everything he said and did. So, for example, when he says, a grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die, otherwise it abides alone, we say, yeah, that's that's right. I, I follow Jesus in that. I accept that, and I count on it for myself as well as for others. And so the domination of my life by my glorious self disappears. Now, I don't go around bragging about that. You have to decide whether or not that's true. If you're interested in it, there are a lot of more important things to be interested in than whether or not I fit that. But that's the reality of following Christ. It is to follow him into the cross and the grave and the resurrection that comes with it. Well, what about this? Jesus said that the kingdom of the heavens can be entered now. That was his message. Now, I'm going to say something to you that may shock you. It's okay. Uh, I'm not right about everything. I may be wrong. So you check me out, okay? The gospel of Jesus was not If you believe I died in your place on the cross, you'll go to heaven when you die. That was not Jesus' gospel. Check it out. Read your Bible. What did Jesus preach? Jesus preached the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. He meant by that it's right where you are. That's where the kingdom is of God is. Wherever you are, that's where the kingdom is. And because that is true, then he says, now Matthew 4, 17, okay, and he says, repent. What does that mean? Well, it means stop thinking the way you've been thinking. What's the way you've been thinking? You've been thinking it is your kingdom that you have to live in. That's the ordinary human approach. That's why Human life around us is filled with fear and pride. Those two things, fear and pride. It's because people think they have to run their lives. And when Jesus comes and says, metanoete, he is saying, think about your thinking in the light of this fact that the kingdom of God is now available for you to live in. How is it available? It is available in Jesus himself. He's the door. He's the light. He's the water. He's the bread. Because in him, the kingdom of God becomes available to everyone. 
everyone. No, that's for Long Beach, or that's wherever you live. And if you want to see the church in the city, you have to understand that the reality of the church in the city is the presence of the kingdom of God in the lives of those who have entered the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so he says, blessed are the poor. Mm. Most people will say, I'd like to pass that blessing. <laughs> I'd like someone else to have that blessing. Right. Well, but he's quite relentless. The poor in the kingdom of heaven are blessed now. Now. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever known a poor person who was blessed? Think about that. How is it possible for a poor person to be blessed? Well, that's a long topic and deserves a long discussion. But what Jesus has in mind is living in the kingdom of God is something that makes you have a blessed life right now, even though you are poor. And uh, the Beatitudes, as they're called, uh, are statements about people who are normally in the human order thought not to be blessed, who are, in spite of everything, blessed because they're living in the kingdom of God. They're living in the kingdom of God. And that's why, on his view, there is no exception to blessing if you simply put your trust in him. That's why he says these weird things like, well, don't be anxious. Don't worry about your clothing, your food, and your house, and all. Don't worry about it, because God will take care of you. Now, that is a huge step for people generally. That's a huge step that if you're going to have the church in the city, you must bring people into that understanding. Only if they understand that do they know where their blessing is and they can stop worrying and hurting others and elevating themselves over others and allow love of neighbor and care for others to be the dominant factor in their lives. Right? Now that's because they have died and their life is hid with Christ in God. And as they live in the city, more and more of what their life is is revealed to those around them and an alternative pattern of life emerges for people who are willing to see. And then they can live in a different way as well because they will have come to know the kingdom of God. So there's a whole world here that we can catch up just in the word eternal living. Now, I want to recommend that in trying to think about this, you don't say eternal life. Say eternal living. This is eternal living, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Eternal living is now. The way we have used eternal life is something that happens to you after you die, whether you want it or not. That's not, it, that's not what is being spoken of when the Scripture, like in John 17:3, talks about eternal life. This is eternal life. What is it? This is eternal life that the disciples know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now that knowledge there, see knowledge biblically always refers to interactive relationship. You have knowledge of something uh, if you are acting with it. And uh, that's what we really require of knowledge. We don't, uh, if we have someone who's going to work on our teeth, for example, a dentist, uh, we don't want them to just have read a book about teeth. <laughs> we want them to have some kinds of interactive relationships with teeth. That's knowledge. And in general, that's the way knowledge works in life. That's what you want in your automobile mechanic, and you might actually hope for it in your politician. That they actually know what's going on. That's knowledge. Knowledge is interactive relationship. Now, Jesus invites us to step beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew 5.20, into a different kind of righteousness. And that righteousness is interactive relationship. The righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisee is rules. It basically consists of, I didn't do it. I didn't kill anybody. Well, who would you be happy if they died? See, that digs deeper. And now in Matthew 5, Jesus goes on to illustrate that. I don't have time to spend much time on it, but you can tell, oh, so the old righteous said, Thou shalt not kill. And immediately he begins talking about thinking people are fools and treating them with contempt because he's moving into the deeper righteousness which provides the context for interactive relationship with God. How can I live without anger and contempt? By living in interactive relationship with God. How can I live beyond cultivated lusting by living in interactive relationship with God? I'm caught up in what he's doing. Eternal living is now what I do. I'm living a life that is a part of what God is doing, and my life, therefore, becomes an eternal kind of life. Okay? So that much to try to spell out what it means to Trust Jesus to seek to be like him. If you trust him, you will naturally seek to be like him. And the kingdom of God now is available. What is the kingdom? I have a few explanations there in your notes. It is where God, what, where God, where what God wants done is done. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. And that's what we want to be caught up in. So we pray, thy kingdom come. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, I'm not praying about the United Nations when I pray that prayer. They need help, but I'm not praying about that. I'm praying about my life. Where am I asking for the kingdom to come and God's will in my life? See, I need all the help that he can provide to enable that to happen. And now I'm jumping ahead again because I want to keep that thing, that theme of the church in the city. See, that's what you want to happen at the 7-Eleven. You're running a taco stand. You want his kingdom to come in that taco stand. You're teaching in the schools. You want his kingdom to come in the classroom, right? No matter what it is you're doing, that's the focus. And the people of Christ are the ones to carry that out into the world. And, of course, that is only done by the action of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to try to make that uh, as clear as possible uh, because I think people have a hard time conceptualizing the action of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, spirit is unbodily personal power. That's what it is in all of its manifestations. The Holy Spirit is a dimension of the nature of God himself that shows up in the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, acting. Now then, if I am going to live life in the Spirit, that means that where I am and what I am doing, like, for example, what am I doing right now? I'm talking to you. Now, if the Holy Spirit does not act with me, you might as well go home. It's only insofar as we are expecting the Holy Spirit. What is our expectation? Did I come down here expecting that I was smart enough to do something that would actually help you? Not on a bed. I'd still be home in bed if that's all there was to it, right? I came down here expecting that God was already at work here and that he would, as I speak, bring to you things that I couldn't possibly bring to you myself and make them real in your life and give you direction and strength to accomplish his will in your life. And we're focusing here, of course, on this issue of life in the Spirit, being a follower of Christ, and bringing that into the presence of the world that we live in. Now, that was what the, the people initially did with Christ. Uh, the uh, word that is central, of course, here is love. Uh, I want to give you 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, 12 through 13, um, because it's such a nice summary of what Paul uh, is teaching. Listen to these words. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men just as we also do 
for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. What's the prayer? That you would abound in love. Okay, take a moment now to just think about love. You love something if you are set to act for its good. That's when you love something. If you love your begonia, you take care of it, don't you? That's the nature of love, is to care for the well-being of the object of the love. So now you can see how, as a people, take on this character and live their lives in an area, then that area is transformed. You think of this area of Long Beach or wherever you're from. Suppose it is an area where because of people who live there and work there, love is the predominant theme. Well, see, that's how life in the Spirit works out through obedient people who have learned to live in the way Paul is talking here to the Thessalonians. And probably this is, it may well be the first, earliest part of the New Testament that was written. Uh, but love has been the theme. And Jesus brought that into the world. And he's the one that really taught the centrality of love. You search the literature of ancient writings or modern writings and try to get a picture of love that comes even close to what Jesus was talking about. And then, of course, Paul spells that out further, and then later on, uh, outstanding people through the ages, Augustine, Bonhoeffer, and so on, have tried to help us understand what love is. Because the constant challenge to the human being is to live in love to those who are around them. The people they don't like. Can you love someone you don't like? Here's another challenge that comes to responsible Christian leaders. How do you fire someone in love? Can you do, can you do that? You do it by attending to what is good for all of the people that are included in the range of your action. If it's firing someone or if it's hiring someone, it's the same principle. Love. You're seeking what is best. You're seeking what is good. Now, you're not seeking it on your own. You're seeking it under God. So you have surrendered your life, your kingdom, if you wish, to the kingdom of God. And now you're acting in that context. And the dominant principle, as Paul is spelling out here for the Thessalonians, is love. Not just to other Christians, but to everyone, to all people. And that is the way of love. And that is what the power that comes from the Holy Spirit is devoted to, is carrying out love in the context of our ordinary life. And that means the city. So the church in the city is a conspiracy, or if you wish, a virus of love. 
That's what it stands for. And it is given reality by living people who are living in the kingdom of God where they are. Now then, the Spirit reinforces that. But we have to learn how to do it. And that's where being a disciple comes in. Being a disciple of Jesus is how we enter into the life of the kingdom, the life of love, animated and directed by the Holy Spirit wherever we are. God speaks to us, we listen, we respond, we ask questions, we learn, we watch the action of God in the lives of people, we make sure that we leave room for him to act and not just a place where we're trying to get our way, because our way probably leaves a lot to be desired. So obedience to Christ and the presence of the Spirit is something we learn as disciples. Now, I'm going to have to come back to that in the last talk today, but let's just try to say what a disciple is. And how does a disciple differ from a Christian? Because the barrier to the spread of the kingdom and the people of Christ in the city is primarily Christians who are not disciples. So let's just bear down that on that a moment. See, we have had for quite a number of years, and in some respect even centuries, people who were called into being Christians without being disciples. And that raises the question, how do we take people into the fellowship of Christians? And what is the difference between a Christian and a disciple? When Jesus sent his people out, uh, he said to them, as you go, make disciples. He didn't say make Christians. He actually didn't say plant churches. Churches will be the natural outcome of making disciples. But if you drop the disciple part away, then you're apt to wind up making churches and Christians who aren't disciples. And the theology of this is a little complicated, but we have to think about it. And if you begin to talk about being a disciple, and what about Christians who aren't disciples? The way we are trained now in our world, the next question in many people's minds is, well, do you mean uh, Christians can be lost? Hmm. Uh, That raises the question, what does saved mean? And it is the assumption about being saved that is tied to a particular version of the gospel. If the gospel is a message just about how to get forgiven so they can't find any reason to keep you out of heaven, 
if, if that's the gospel, then it has no natural connection with being a disciple. So at this point, let's just try to bear down on this idea that if you're going to be a person of love, where you are, living in the kingdom of God, where you are, by the power of the Spirit, where you are, you have to learn that. And the way you learn that is by becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's just say something about that now, and we have to come back to it this afternoon, uh, or you may want to get into it in the question and answer session. Who is a disciple? How would you describe a disciple? A disciple of Jesus, of course, we're talking about that, though actually people can become disciples of disciples if the disciples are disciples of Jesus. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. So now we have to go back and dig into that a bit more and ask ourselves, how do you, who is the disciple? And the first thing you want to say is, well, a disciple is a student. That's a perfectly good translation of the word that we normally translate, disciple, method, and uh, a word I like even better is apprentice because apprentice has this application, the applied sense. So a disciple of Jesus first gets its meaning from the Gospels and the Acts where you're looking at people who were disciples. Who were his disciples? They were people with him. That's the first thing. They didn't have distance learning in those days. And I'm, I'm not very hopeful for discipleship in the context of distance learning even today. A disciple is someone who is with him. Or, you know, teaching is a general function of human beings and it's something that we do and uh, a child, for example, that is learning uh, division in uh, arithmetic from a teacher is someone who is with the teacher, learning to be like the teacher with reference to division. Does that make any sense? See that? Now, that's the basic idea of disciple. And when it comes to Jesus, then a disciple is someone who is with him, how do they do that? That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. They have surrendered to him, and now they are learning to be like him through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit can use other people. They can use the scriptures, uh, many things that can be used. You even use nature or history to teach people. But the Holy Spirit comes now and makes Jesus present with those who seek him. And being with him, they learn to be like him. See, now, outstanding things in the scriptures give us some guidance to begin with. 
And that is why the cross and surrender through the cross uh, is so important. Because we want to join Jesus on the cross in order to have a very clear way of thinking about that passage in John that I read from the start, a grain of wheat, as long as it doesn't fall into the ground and die, abides alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. Now, we have to learn how to do that. And if we don't learn how to do that, then we're not going to be able to live in the context of the church and of the community, our family, uh, and all of the connections of life, vocational and other. We want to come back to that because vocation is absolutely fundamental to this idea of the church in the city. If it doesn't reach the workplaces and the vocations, it'll never reach the city. Uh, But now we are students of Christ, and we watch how he lived, and we watch how he died, and we get a pattern which makes the cross so central to Christian devotion. Now, don't stop at the cross. Okay, Jesus didn't stop at the cross. When he said it is finished, he wasn't saying, I've done my work. No, if you're going to have a resurrection, you need a death, don't you? Right? And the death of Christ is the open doorway to his resurrection and his continued existence and reality in our world. And now then we say, okay, I will join him there. I am crucified with Christ. Someone say that? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I now have that faith that he had in me. The faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a disciple. See, I'm learning from him how to live my life as he would live my life in the kingdom of God if he were I. The focus is upon my life as a disciple. I am his apprentice. And now we'll come back more to that uh, uh, later on this afternoon, look at some of the details of, of how that works out. But for now, we just want to understand that the progression we've been making here, following Christ, the kingdom of God, living in love, now a disciple, all of that in the presence of the Holy Spirit who is not visible, but who is acting. That is how we live, come to live our lives in the kingdom of God with him. So now, obedience and life in the Spirit are inseparable. Okay, we, we have to learn. That's the role of the disciple. But a lot of what we're learning is how obedience and the action of the Spirit of God come together. And above all, we want to understand that obedience is a part of our action with the Spirit of God. 
And so as disciples, now we're learning how that works. Imagine if our churches were focused on that. Imagine if that was the thing we did when we come together, is we are, we are focused upon helping people as disciples of Jesus learn how to live in obedience, which is in interaction with the Holy Spirit. Am I making any sense at all? Okay. This connection is the one we're apt to miss. Obedience, the Spirit. And we're apt to think that somehow we can have the Spirit without the obedience. And we can't. We can't do it. Now the Spirit acts, and it has its own powers and its own purposes. It doesn't exactly wait on us, but with reference to our own life, the doorway to life in the Spirit is obedience. And the doorway to obedience is discipleship. And so you might think, now that's what we would be doing in church. Hmm? See, I don't think there is any alternative to the church as local congregations of people who are drawn together in discipleship to Christ. There's simply no hope beyond that. That's God's plan. And one reason is because that's a context of learning which we can't locate anywhere else. Well, spotted here and there. You don't want to get too dogmatic about all of this. But the, the local people of Christ in an area, including families and neighbors and so on. Uh, and in our world today, that takes a little different shape because of transportation and associations of various kinds. And sometimes you have people who are living next door to one another, and one goes 30 miles in that direction to go to church, and one goes 30 miles in that direction to go to church. This is a real problem, folks. This is a real problem. And at some point, we have to come to grips with it and think about what we're going to do to enable the people who actually live close to one another and perhaps work in the same place to have the fellowship of the body of Christ. Uh, even though they have radically different traditions, and uh, so we'll have to deal with that this afternoon. So now, when that presence of the Spirit becomes the reality of our lives, uh, then we are in a position to see the blessing of God coming upon our lives. I have in your notes here a reference to the blessing of Abraham. And that blessing of Abraham is something we want to understand. It's brought up to the New Testament in Galatians 3, the blessing of Abraham. What was the blessing of Abraham? Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament, and I don't want to take the time to do all of that, but you have the references there, the Genesis 21 and 26 and 28. The blessing of Abraham became a recognized style of life, which the neighbor of Abraham, Abimelech, he described it as God blesses you 
in all that you do. God blesses you in all that you do. And you'll find that in those verses in Genesis. And then that's updated for Isaac. And Isaac was, uh, he had the presence of God with him so much that he scared Abimelech. And Abimelech said, why don't you move away from us? And then Abimelech watched him from a distance, and pretty soon he came around and said, well, maybe you should move back with us. Because we see that the blessing of God is manifestly upon your life. And when Jacob runs to Uncle Laban, the blessing of Abraham is passed on to him. Now, you can immediately transfer that into something called the prosperity gospel if you wish. But it's not about prosperity. It's about living in the kingdom of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the presence of God the Father, and now of God the Son on our lives. Obedience results in fulfillment, in blessing, but a blessing that is safe because our lives are lined up with God from the inside and out. So now when you go back and you think, as I mentioned a moment ago, about the Ten Commandments, what, does, what do the Ten Commandments do? They align you with God. They align you with God. Uh, that's what God's commandments are for. And God's commandments are uh, one of the greatest blessings of grace that humanity has. Um, I can say with confidence to anyone who's in real trouble, well, keep, keep the Ten Commandments. Start there. Now, when they start with the Ten Commandments, one of the first things that they're going to learn is that they have to depend on God. See, if you're, if you're going to tell the truth, You'll need to depend on God. And you'll find that out very rapidly. Um, and if you're going to perhaps honor your father and mother or any of the other things that are mentioned, if you're going to live free from covetousness, you can only do that by depending on God. So here's the basic thought now once again. The commandments of God align us with the life of God. The commandments of God. Now, the Ten Commandments are marvelous, but they're not enough. And so the very last verse in the Old Testament is an indication of the failure of the law as it had been understood. Because it talks about the necessity of someone coming to turn the hearts of the fathers towards the children and the hearts of the children towards the fathers. Sometime look that verse up, the very last verse in the Old Testament. And what that is is a recognition of the inadequacy of the law as it had been given. And then, of course, when you move on to Jesus, that's where you go into the righteousness of the kingdom as opposed to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisee, which was a distorted understanding of law. And the, 
the older laws did not deal with the issue of personal transformation. Hey, you know, when you start taking seriously the Ten Commandments, you begin to realize how inadequate your character is. I mean, just, just start with this thing of family. Um, you're going to honor your father and your mother. Well, yeah, but you don't know my father and mother. <laughs> if you just knew them, you wouldn't say that. So the understanding of what is required of a person who's going to do that, see, and how you get there, that's what was lacking. And, of course, there were other, other problems. The ethnicity of the Jews that crept into the old law was just a killing burden on the human soul. The book of Acts is basically a discussion of how the early followers of Jesus had to break through that ethnicity thing. And uh, there's an awful lot we could say here. Uh, sometimes we get tired of hearing about that. And uh, what we just have to realize is that issues about ethnicity and so on are really neighbor issues. They're neighbor issues. And if you deal with the neighbor issue by the renewal of the heart, the ethnicity thing will, with some help, take care of itself. So when I look at the Ten Commandments, I have to say, now, you don't try to keep the Ten Commandments. You try to become the kind of person who would naturally keep them. Okay, now, can, uh, can I just uh, emphasize that? See, that's, that's, what, that's where we have to go as disciples. As a disciple of Jesus, I'm not keeping a bunch of rules. As a disciple of Jesus, I'm becoming a certain kind of person for whom the rules actually won't be useful. Right. Uh, do you think I've, if I've learned to love people, murder will be a problem for me? Probably not. See. If I've learned to love people, and now I have that ability, and the Holy Spirit is living in me and guiding me and helping me with all of my inadequacies, I won't need to worry about murder. Now, you know, if I really value and treasure women, do you think I would have trouble with cultivating my lust by looking at them? No, I won't. I won't think of them in that category because now my heart is changed. See, the, the issue we have with pornography in our culture, even with ministers and churches, the problem there is with how people think about others. And if you change that thinking by keeping company with Jesus, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, then this other stuff will drop off. And you might find yourself saying, why would I want to do something like that? See, that's the inner transformation. That's what we're aiming at. And if we're obsessed with not taking drugs or whatever the deal is, you know, 
If that's it, all you'll have is, I'm not going to do it. But you are going to do it. If that's all there is to it. It's when the way of thinking changes. And if you don't get there, whatever it is will beat you. Your anger, your desire for revenge, unforgiveness. You can't deal with those things just by trying to deal with those things. And this, of course, is is true of the Ten Commandments, but it's even more true of the things that Jesus taught us to do. Bless those who curse you. Well, how are you going to do that? Now, uh, probably this afternoon I'll want to come back and spend more time on that because I want to get quite specific in thinking about how the life of the Spirit works in conjunction with obedience as it develops in the life of the disciple. So now I need to talk a bit about grace here. Uh, because grace is a problem for many people. And they uh, really do think that grace excludes discipleship. And they think, well, you know, it's all of grace, right? So what are you going to do? You're going to become a disciple? Now, this is explicitly present in our fellowships today. And I know particular pastors who have begun to talk about discipleship and discipline and learning in their congregations, and people just come out of the woodwork and saying, well, what does this have to do with grace? I'm saved by grace. You told me I was saved by grace. Now why are you telling me I have to memorize Scripture? Why are you telling me I need to practice solitude in order to bring my passions and affections into line with obeying the things that Jesus said. I've got a straight shot to heaven by grace. So now we have to think about grace in a different way. And I really encourage you, I think because I believe you folks really are biblical, biblically oriented and you respect the scripture. I encourage you to just take your concordance and do a little inductive Bible study on the theme of grace. But uh, since we can't do that here, let me just try to illustrate it a bit and say what grace is. And I have in your notes there, grace is God acting in our life to enable us to do what we cannot do on our own. That's what grace is. Now, when you turn to your Bible and you begin to review, you come across passages like, for example, in Ephesians 3, where Paul says he's talking about his position as a minister and comparing himself to others. And, and uh, he says, unto me, who is the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should minister to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's a grace? Yeah. That's God acting in our life, or in Paul's life in this case, 
acting in Paul's life to accomplish what he could not accomplish on his own. Now that's the general character of grace. And now then, when, once you begin to study grace, you will see how that is an active principle in our life. See, we need to say that grace is not opposed to action. It's opposed to earning. Okay? Not opposed to action. In fact, you've never seen anyone act like someone who's been caught on fire by grace. And they really go. Because there's now a different kind of power in their lives. And they will undertake things that are humanly impossible. And they will see things done that they couldn't have possibly done on their own. See, grace is not a consolation prize. You, you can pick that up from the way Paul's statements in 2 Corinthians about his weaknesses and how he sought the Lord to pick, take something that was bothering him off of his life. And uh, we could have a long discussion about that, but we won't unless you initiate it. Then um, he says, the Lord said, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is made complete or perfect in weakness. And so then Paul goes on to say, I will glory in my failures, in my weakness, and all of that. Paul was an alpha dog sort of person, you know. And that comes out over and over uh, in his, in his uh, writings. And he wanted recognition. Uh, but the Lord told him, you won't have that. My grace is sufficient to you. That, that makes grace look like a consolation prize. Grace is not a consolation prize. That's the real stuff. Grace is not just there to deal with sin and guilt. Before we sinned, we lived by grace. Huh? Now, go back, try that statement again. What is grace? God acting in our lives to accomplish what we can't accomplish on our own. Well, what were we doing before we sinned? Okay, go back and read Genesis and dig that out. We were in charge, basically in charge of the earth. And basically we still are. That's why we're making such a mess of it. Right? Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make human beings in our likeness. And what is that likeness? Let them have dominion. That's what you're made for, that's what I'm made for, is dominion. And the dominion was to be over all of the earth. Uh, uh, read the list sometimes there. It starts out with fish. You had dominion over fish. Well, actually, the fish are in trouble. And... Uh, you know, if you have some uh, killer whales trapped in an ice floe in the Arctic, people will say, let's go get them out. You know, they don't say that about us when we're in trouble. They're not supposed to. 
we have built into us a sense of responsibility for the earth. Now, we're not doing very well with it, and that's another story. My point here is, if you were going to be in charge of the earth, just the fish, you would need some grace to carry out your responsibilities. Is that right? Yeah, you're going to need some grace. What is grace? God, grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we can't accomplish on our own. Right? So now by the time you get to Psalm 8, you're graduated up to sheep. <laughs> and now I ask you, if you were writing that, what would you put on the list? You probably wouldn't think much about fish. I doubt any of us here have seen a sheep today. So what do we have dominion over? Well, um, just all kinds of things. Computers, automobiles, government plans in some cases. See, that's, that's natural for the human being to be responsible. And they are responsible through grace. And grace is, of course, essentially dependent upon the action of the Holy Spirit. Because we're living in a personal context of interaction with him. And then all of the issues about the law and righteousness and prosperity and all of that comes under his heading. Life in the Spirit means that. But if you're going to live life in the Spirit today, you have to go to your office or whatever the context of your work is. Because dominion now and kingdom under God for each of us has to do with what we are primarily responsible for. So may I challenge you uh, for your, the break today at lunch. Go back and write Psalm 8 for you. Would you do that? See, that psalm is saying, what is man? It's looking at the moon, stars, and all that. What is a human being that you pay any attention to? It? And it answers that question in terms of responsibilities. And what I'm suggesting, suggesting to you now is that today you'll have a little time and if you want to say uh, dominion over a hamburger or something else, you can start there. <laughs> if you're going to eat it, you'd better have dominion over it. Okay. What's on the list? What's on the list for you? Now, if you do that, then the concreteness of our lives under the Spirit of God in our actual world will begin to take on shape that we can realize covers our lives. What we're talking about here, life in the Spirit and so on, it's not just religious stuff. The kingdom of God is not a religious thing. It's a reality thing. Our responsibility in our world 
is not a religious thing. Discipleship isn't a religious thing. The church is for discipleship, but discipleship is for the world, not for the church. And I better stomp my foot and say that again because we tend to think discipleship is for the church. And that's a sure way to choke it. Discipleship is not for the church. The church is for discipleship if it's functioning rightly. That's why we start out saying, make disciples. And then the church arises out of disciples who are called together in their lives under God. And as they live together, where do they live? Well, not in the church house. Anyone here live in the church house? I hope I don't. If you do, don't say so. (laughs) See, your life is where the Holy Spirit brings the kingdom of God. And your discipleship to Jesus teaches you how to do that. Now, you have to adjust a lot of things, see, because uh, what Christ comes to do is to open the door to everything that is good and true and beautiful. As Paul in Philippians 4.8 talks about, you know, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will set a guard around your heart. But listen, he says, now finally, this is verse 8 of Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, are you ready for that? Whatever is good, of good report, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. I didn't see anything religious in there, did you? Hmm. Ephesians 5, Verse 8 and following. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Okay, you may want to... uh, you may want to look at those verses again when you, if you come to write a list of uh, things that you have been given dominion over. Okay. See, that's what we're learning as we learn uh, to receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. And he says, I give you Romans 5:17 there on your sheet. Under, under grace, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. See? Reigning in life. Uh, now, I don't like to bully audiences, but if you feel free, 
Can you say reigning in life? Let's try it again. Reigning in life by one, Christ Jesus. Didn't say reigning in the church house. That's important too, and we certainly need a good deal more of that. But reigning is in life. Now, reigning is for God's kingdom, but now then, it's for your kingdom because you've brought your kingdom into his kingdom. What is your kingdom? It is what you have say over. It's what you have say over. And every person has a kingdom. This lady down here has a pocketbook, a very nice-looking pocketbook. Suppose I were to just walk down there and pick it up and start going through it. Hmm. Well, I would have invaded her queendom. See, everyone has one. That's what God has made us for. That's Genesis 1.26. Let them have dominion. This lady has dominion over that pocketbook. And if you don't believe it, just try to get it away from her. (laughs) She will let you know. So now we receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, and we reign in life by one Christ Jesus, because grace is now accomplishing in our lives what we cannot accomplish on our own. So now I give you a kind of summary here at the bottom of your first page of notes. The Church of Jesus Christ consists of followers of Jesus in the above sense who are constantly learning and progressing in his character and power as disciples. I have a lot to learn. I have to approach my work at USC or in other connections, much of it related to that, as an apprentice of Jesus. I am learning. I'm progressing, I believe, in his character and power. And, as is appropriate, I try to induct and lead others into the depths of Christ's life on earth now. And Paul's way of putting that was putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and leaving the flesh to take care of itself. Laying aside the old self, putting on the new self, consists of habits and thoughts and social connections and uh, uh, things like books and students and all of that. See, I'm learning how to reign in life by one in those contexts. And I love the statement in Second Peter 3.18. I hope everyone has memorized that. Growing in the grace, remember what grace is, and knowledge, remember what knowledge is, okay? Grace, God acting in our lives, we're growing that. And more and more of our lives are a reflection of God acting in our lives. Knowledge, interactive relationship. So more and more as I live 
I increase my interactive relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, just final remark. Uh, you here in this meeting can actually bring this about. The increasing dominance of God in your life and around you. But you must intend to do it. And you know that many of us in the church have never been invited or challenged to become a disciple of Jesus. I think I better say that again. Because that, that's the heart of the matter if we're going forward, see, is to invite people to become disciples. Now, in order to do that, we're going to have to help them understand what the whole deal is about. So that goes back to what is the message we preach? What do we present as salvation? What is being saved? Is it having your whole life caught up in God's life? Increasingly, deliverance from all that is bad and bringing into what is good by the grace of God? Or is it just you're not going to get an eternal spanking if you trust the spanking that Jesus got on the cross. If we intend to do this and work with the people that we have around us in our fellowships and if we work with fellow ministers now this I have to come back to this afternoon because the most important ministry that a minister has is to other ministers. I'll say that again so you can worry about it over lunch. <laughs> the most important ministry that a minister has is to other ministers. And we, if we're going to see what we're talking about here in Long Beach or Los Angeles or wherever it is, Christ, the church in the city, it has to be through the exaltation of ministers. The exaltation of ministers. They are the ones who have to lead. And if they don't lead in the community, there will be no leadership. Because they are the ones who have the character, the message, and the power. And we need to make sure that we are devoting our prayers, our thoughts, our fellowship to others who are trying to carry forward with the ministry of grace in our setting. All right, I'm going to quit there. Lord, help us to profit from these words. Would you please give us benefit from what is good and remove anything that is not good. In the name and honor of your son, Jesus, we ask that. Amen.